Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Daniel, if you don't know where Daniel is, it's after the book of Ezekiel. If you don't know where Ezekiel is, look it up. (laughs) We're starting a new sermon series this morning on the book of Daniel. I don't know how many of you have ever read the short story or seen the short film by James Clavell called The Children's Story. You can go on YouTube and watch it. My mother was a high school English teacher, and so she often showed this video clip to her students. It was written in 1981 at the height of the Cold War, and it tells the story of what would happen right after America gets taken over by a communist country. It's very eerie. To this day, it still gives me chills. It gives me um, feelings of, of anxiety as I watch this children's story. The setting is an elementary school classroom, probably of third or fourth graders. And the established teacher in the classroom is relieved of her duties. And the new teacher comes in. And the new teacher is young and she's beautiful. And what starts is a masterful episode in brainwashing children. She begins to talk about pledging to the flag. And so they stand up and the kids start saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And then she stops and says, what are, what are we really doing here? And then the next thing you know, the kids are cutting up the American flag. And they're throwing the flag out the window. And then she begins to turn the parents against the children saying, your parents are thinking wrong thoughts. And then she says that um, you're not going back home to your parents. We're going to stay overnight at school. And one of the girls says, well, if we stay overnight at school, can we say our prayers? And she says, yeah, we can say our prayers. As a matter of fact, let's say our prayers right now, children. But instead of calling him God, let's call him our leader. And there's this little boy, Johnny, who's really nervous. He, he, he's not quite sure what's going on. And, and so he begins to question the teacher. He begins to show a little streak of defiance. And, and so she's like, children, let's pray to our leader for candy. Let's pray really hard for candy. And so they start praying for candy. And they open their eyes and there's no candy there. And then she starts to mock God. Well, your God's not very powerful if he's not going to give you candy. Let's pray again. Let's pray harder to our leader to see if he will give you candy. Well, as the children are praying, she puts candy on the desk. And little Johnny opens his eyes and sees her. They open their eyes after saying amen, and they see the candy. And they're all excited because our leader has given them candy. And finally, Johnny says, you put them there. You put them there. And she says, Johnny, you're a very wise boy. I did put them there. You cannot trust in God The only person you can trust in is a person like me. And if you work real hard, Johnny, I will give you everything you ever wanted. At the end of the story, the kids are gathered around her. She's looking out the window and she's smiling. And they're like, why are you smiling, teacher? She says, because the world is one world now. And there are people all across our land 
learning what you're learning today. And then she turns and stares at the camera, and you start to get really upset. (laughs) And all the patriotism in you wells. I I challenge you to go on YouTube and, and, and look at the children's story. You feel angry. You feel frustrated how seductive brainwashing occurs among these impressionable young kids. Now, why do I tell you the story about brainwashing, about reprogramming, about seduction? Because the same event happened to a teenage boy named Daniel and his three friends. So today I begin a new sermon series through the book of Daniel, and I have to tell you, I come with much fear and trembling. I've debated many times in my mind whether I should preach this book. And the Lord keeps coming back to me, and he's put the burden for me to preach this. And so we're going to preach it, or I'm going to preach it. Maybe you can help me preach it. This is one of the most confusing and controversial books in the Old Testament. And you may hear me from many times from this pulpit say this, I have no idea what Daniel's saying, but here's my best guess. We're, we're treading into some unfamiliar territory. So, so why study Daniel? Why go to Daniel? Why even go to the Old Testament? Most of you are familiar with the New Testament. We spend a lot of time in the New Testament, but over two-thirds of your Bible is the Old Testament. And we need to understand what God's word is from us from the other two-thirds of the book. And so as we move through Daniel chapter 1 this morning, we're going to be looking at a lot of the major themes that Daniel addresses in his entire book. So so chapter 1 really sets the stage for some of the major themes that we're going to be seeing over the next few months. And so before we dive right into Daniel... As we do with any book that we're unfamiliar with, we've got to lay some groundwork. We've got to do some background. So let me just spend a little bit of time this morning, give you some background. So first of all, we need to understand the setting. When does Daniel take place? If you remember Israel's history, if you're a student of the Old Testament, the the, the monarchy was united under King David. It was at its peak. David was the king. It was one nation under God with, with David as the king. And then David's son, Solomon, built the temple. And so Israel was united under one monarchy. But then, after Solomon, what happened was the nation split into civil war. You had a northern kingdom called Israel, and you had a southern kingdom called Judah. And many wicked kings, a few good ones, and eventually the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by Assyria. And so you have the southern kingdom as the only kingdom that's left. And in the last days of the southern kingdom, Daniel is born. In 605 BC, an important date in world history, King Nebuchadnezzar and his imperial troops march into Jerusalem and they ransack Jerusalem and they drag off all of the royal family in what would become the 70 years of exile in Babylon. The temple was destroyed, the wall was burned down, And so these young men are taken back as prisoners of war to Babylon. So let's read Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 3, to set the stage here for what's going on in the book of Daniel. And we're going to come across a lot of weird names, so let's just, we'll just deal with that as we go through them, okay? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand 
with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Asphanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and sieges Jerusalem. This is no surprise to God. This doesn't take God by surprise. God is not wondering what's happened. As a matter of fact, God prophesied this would happen. If you go back to Leviticus, God gave a warning to his covenant people and said, this is what's going to happen if you don't keep the covenant, Israel. In Leviticus 26, 33, God says this, I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be waste. God knew this was going to happen. This wasn't a surprise to God. But there's an interesting use of language that Daniel uses here. In verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, in our English translations, you don't see that, but literally it is the God. The God. All the way through the book of Daniel, God is referred to as the, capital G, God. Now, why in the world would Daniel put that prefix, the, in front of God? Was to remind his original readers that there is only one true God, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the gods of Babylon, all these pagan deities, they are false gods. There's only one, the God. His name is God, the God, most fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And where do they bring him back to? They bring them back to the land of Shinar. I thought they brought him back to Babylon. Is it Babylon or is it Shinar? And the answer is yes. Do you remember your history of the Bible? Where is Shinar? If you go back to Genesis 11, Shinar is the location of the Tower of Babel. He's bringing them back to Babylon, Shinar, the place that is the epitome of people attempting to make their way to God, refusing everything about the living God, and building for themselves an identity of pride and success and idolatry. And so really it's a code word. Shinar is a euphemism for Babel. That place defined back in Genesis 11 where the people defied God. And Daniel's using this term Shinar to, to set the ominous tone that we're going back to the land of Babel, Babylon, the Tower of Babel. In addition to the setting of what's going on here, we need to discuss the structure. Daniel can easily be divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 talk about what we call court narratives. These are the stories of Daniel and his three friends in the court of the kings. Now, we're familiar with 1 through 6. This is what we grew up learning in Sunday school. You've got the, the fiery furnace, which we'll see in a few weeks. We've got Daniel and the lion's den. These are exciting stories that we're familiar with in chapters 1 through 6. But when you get to the second half, chapter 7 through 12, it shifts to apocalyptic. It shifts to what we'd be more familiar with revelation. You've got these weird images and these beasts and, and a lot of this prophetic things about the end times. And so we'll be coming to chapter 7, and that's probably where I'm going to stop and say, okay, it's been fun, but let's stop and do something else. But no, we're going to trudge through Daniel 7 through 12 as we try to figure out what in the world Daniel's saying with all of these imageries. Now, let's talk about the original language for a moment. Almost all the Bible is written in Hebrew with the exception of parts of Ezra and Daniel here. 
from Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, it's written in Aramaic. It's a bilingual book. He starts it in Hebrew, switches to Aramaic, switches back to Hebrew. Now, there's been a lot of debate as to why in the world did, did this happen. I don't really have a good answer. My, my best answer is the first part of it deals with these Jewish boys coming into this pagan world. And so it's got a Hebrew language. Then it shifts when it talks about the, their, their life in the Gentile world into the Aramaic language, which was the language of the day. It was probably Daniel writing his memoirs as he is in the court of the king. Daniel's bilingual. And then it switches back in verses 8 through 12 to Hebrew because it's dealing again with the nation of Israel and prophecies related to the nation of Israel. We really don't know. It's in two languages. But for our purposes, what's more important is Daniel tells the story of two cities. It's a tale of two cities. Jerusalem and Babylon. And that's what the Bible talks about from Genesis to Revelation. It's really two kingdoms. In Revelation, it talks about the new Jerusalem personified as God's people, the bride. And then it talks about Babylon, the harlot, the prostitute. And all throughout the history of the Bible, you've got two kingdoms. Not literal Jerusalem, not literal Babylon, but God's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. So we're in both cities. We're in the city of man. We're in the city of God. And so here's the big question. How do you live as God's citizen in a different country? You see, we're all exiles here on this earth. How do Jerusalem and Babylon coexist? How do you as a stranger, as an exile, as one who is a foreigner in this land, how do you live in Babylon? Because we're all in Babylon. We're not in heaven yet. We're living in Babylon. And you cannot serve two masters. As a matter of fact, what does Jesus say in Matthew 6, 24? Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He's talking about God and money here, but you cannot serve two masters. You're either serving God or you're serving this world, but you can't serve both. Now, the basis for Daniel really comes from a psalm. The very last psalm written. Psalm 137 is the very last psalm written. It's a psalm written about the nation of Israel going into Babylonian captivity. They're looking back at their destroyed city. They're being taken into captivity. And Psalm 137 sets the stage for this exile. Here's what Psalm 137, 1-4 says. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. That's just a musical instrument, like their guitars. We hung up our guitars on the trees. For there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's the $10 million question. How do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Sinclair Ferguson has said this. How can the Christian whose citizenship is in heaven sing the Lord's song as an exile here? In other words, how do we, as citizens of heaven, live lives here on earth and remain faithful to God as a stranger in a strange land, in, in two kingdoms? And Daniel paints a tapestry that will answer this question for us. So with this as our background, let's just jump right in here to chapter 1. 
Let's look at verses 3 through 7 and see how the story unfolds. They've just been brought back out of captivity. I mean, they've been brought to captivity in Babylon, out of Jerusalem. The, 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 the treasury of God's house has been ransacked. And then verse 4. Let's back up to verse 3. Then the king commanded Asphanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. That's hard for me to say sometimes. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. What I want us to see this morning are four overarching questions related to chapter 1 that will set the stage for us as we go through the book of Daniel. These four questions will come back to them. What are the, the four big issues that frame this book? Here's question number one. Here's the first big issue in the book of Daniel. How do we remain dependent upon Christ in a world that seduces us to remain independent of Christ? How do we remain dependent upon Jesus? as opposed to staking our independence from Jesus. You see, we live in a world that champions independence. We're bombarded with messages every day that say, live your life, do your own thing, chart your course, have your best life, try real hard, do everything in your independence to carve out a life for yourself, but don't depend upon Jesus. We hear these messages all the time. How do we live in a world that screams to us independence from Jesus? Live a life that says, I'm going to be dependent upon Jesus. You see, if we're not careful, we can be seduced into thinking that somehow this is our home, that our world is right here as opposed to our citizenship being in heaven, and and we're not cognizant of Christ being in our all in all. As we sang this morning, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. You see, in other parts of the world, Satan attacks the church through persecution. If we were in China today or Sudan or in in Iran or places like that, we would have fear of persecution. But in America, yes, I believe persecution is probably coming someday, but here's here's how Satan deals with the church in America. Not so much through persecution, but through seduction. Through seduction. He seduces us with materialism, worldliness, hedonism, pleasure and what we see unfold before us is an ingenious reprogramming plan by king nebuchadnezzar and when i say ingenious i'm not agreeing with him i'm just saying that in capturing israel he does something very ingenious to reprogram these young men into becoming dependent upon him and not dependent upon christ it's a three-year reprogramming system It's a three-year training and reprogramming system. Most scholars believe these men were probably 14 or 15 years old when they were taken into captivity. So we've got young teenage boys for a three-year reprogramming system. And from the text, we see four parts of this plan. What's the plan of Nebuchadnezzar? What's he going to do to reprogram these young boys? First of all, 
In verse 3, we see the issue of isolation. What does he do? He takes them from their home. He takes them out of everything that gave them stability. They're taken from temple worship. They're taken from church. They're taken from their families. They're taken from the sound teaching of God's word by the priests and the prophets. They are taken out of everything that gives them stability, and they are isolated away from their family, away from church, away from everything that would give them an identity. And if you want to brainwash someone, just isolate them from everything that gives them stability. Take them away from their support system. That's what they did for three years. Isolated them. Secondly, not only isolation, but indoctrination. What happens here? We see the tactic of indoctrination. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 4. To teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Three-year retraining program to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, we may look at this and say, well, man, these guys were getting a great education. They were learning the language. They were learning the customs. They were being exposed to higher learning. But that's not what was going on here. This is a shift in worldview. This is a shift in worldview. Indoctrination. It's not about the temple worship Hebrew young men. It's not about the one living God. It's not about the priesthood. It's not about the law. It's not about um, living for God. It's about the pagan deities. It's about the culture of Babylon. We're going to immerse you in this three-year indoctrination system to get you to buy into the language, buy into the culture, buy into the worldview of Babylon. So hopefully after three years, we've weaned you off of everything that gave you identity in Jerusalem. We're going to isolate you. We're going to indoctrinate you. Thirdly, Nebuchadnezzar was going to give them false dependence. Now, what do I mean by false dependence? This may be harder for you to see in the text. What were they given? Verse 5, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? They had all the best food, all the best wine, everything that their little hearts could have wanted. And so this is very seductive. Very, very seductive by Nebuchadnezzar. What he's saying here is, young men, instead of depending upon God and his grace for everything, depend upon me. You're coming into my court. You've got my food. You've got my wine. You've got everything your heart desires. And so after a while, Daniel and his friends begin to think, well, man, I'm entitled to royalty. I'm entitled to all these things. I don't have to depend upon God anymore. I can just depend upon the king. And they they get this issue of pride, entitlement. They don't thank God for his mercies. I can just rely upon what the king gives me. I don't need to worry about Jesus. I don't need to worry about God. I'll rely upon somebody else giving me all that I need. So isolation, indoctrination, false dependence. Fourthly, confusion. Now what do I mean by confusion? Notice verse 7. The chief of the eunuchs changes their names. Now you may ask, what's the big deal about their names changing? In Israel, names meant something. Your name gave you your identity. Your name often said something about the character and nature of God. And so here's what happens. Daniel's name means God is my judge. A very fitting name for Daniel. God is my judge. God is who I live for. God is the one that's going to to judge my life. My life is dependent upon God. God is my judge. What's Daniel's name changed to? Belteshazzar, which is a pagan god really meant, this pagan God is going to protect your life now, Daniel. 
not the God. Okay, so Daniel's name's changed. Hananiah, his name's changed. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. His name is changed to Shadrach, which means moon god. God is gracious to moon god, worshiping the god of grace to a moon god. Misael. Misael means there is no god like the god of Israel. Otherwise, there's only one god, and it's the god of Israel. His name's changed to um, Meshach, which means who is your god? Azariah. His name means the Lord will help. The Lord will help. His name's changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Nebo was the second greatest god in Babylon. So, so here's a calculated indoctrination program of three years. Nebuchadnezzar says, if I can get these guys isolated, if I can get them indoctrinated, if I can get them to depend upon me, and if I can change their name, hopefully after three years they will forget everything that they learned in Israel and they will be a product of Babylon. They will speak the language, they will like our customs, they will like our religion, they will be fully immersed in this world. So the first question we've got to ask is, how do we remain dependent upon Christ in a world that seduces us to, to be independent of Christ? How do we gain our dependence upon Christ? Second big question. It's related to the first, but here's the second big question. How do we remain faithful to Christ? How do we remain faithful to Christ when everything in this culture screams to us to compromise our allegiance to Christ? How do we remain faithful? How do we remain faithful in Babylon? Like Daniel and his friends. Well, let's continue reading. Let's see what Daniel does. How do we remain faithful to Christ? Verses 8 through 16. But Daniel resolved, key word there, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you're in worse condition than these youths who are of your own age? So would you endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate of the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, we see three things here that Daniel does which help us answer the question, how do you remain faithful? What are the three things that Daniel does? First of all, he makes a decisive and resolved commitment not to compromise. Notice verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He made a strong commitment. He made a strong decision. Now this was a huge risk. To not eat the king's food would, number one, be just... um, an act of defiance, but number two, it could have cost him his life. It would have been an insult to the king. Now think about here, teenagers, for a moment. Peer pressure. 
You're a 15-year-old boy, and everybody else is doing it. It would be very hard for you to stand up on your own and say, you know what, I'm not going to go with the crowd. I'm going to resolve not to defile myself with the king's food. And there was great temptation because this was probably the best food they'd ever seen. This is Thanksgiving on, ter- on steroids. I mean, this is, this is a huge meal. And think about it. They're 900 miles away from home. Nobody's going to know if they compromise. Word's not going to get back to their parents. Nobody's going to know if we compromise. Our old life is 900 miles away. We're in a new place. Everyone's doing it. Peer pressure. But think about another temptation. This one may be a little bit more hard to see. Daniel could have been very bitter against God. He could have said, God, you did not protect us in Jerusalem. God, you allowed us to be taken into captivity. God, you've disrupted my life. And so as an act of defiance against you, God, and bitterness, I don't care what your rules are. I'm out of bitterness and out of spite. I'm just going to indulge myself with all these things this new world has to offer because after all, God, you didn't protect us. We're here now, and so God, just forget you. But he doesn't do that. He resolves not to defile himself. He makes a strong commitment. But secondly... He's not combative in doing that. He's not going in guns blazing. He's humble. He's respectful. Yes, he stands with boldness, but he goes in with a respectful, non-combative posture, which I think is very important as we see through the rest of Daniel. He just modestly goes and asks the chief of the eunuchs, hey, can we just do this experiment? Can we do this vegetable thing? As a matter of fact, in verse 12, in the original language, there's not, there, it's not there in your English, but it says, please test your servants. He goes in very humbly and says, hey, c- could you just please let us do this? We don't want to cause a lot of waves, but we worship the God of Israel, and we're not going to defile ourselves. Would, would you please just let us go with just vegetables and water for 10 days? Please test your servants. Yeah, we're living in a culture that's hostile to Christianity, but we need to work with the culture as opposed to being combatively against the culture at times at times now what did the prophet jeremiah tell the israelites to do when they went into exile jeremiah 29 4-7 thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel to all the exiles whom i have sent into exile from jerusalem to babylon okay that means daniel what are you to do when you go into babylon build houses and live in them plant gardens and eat their produce Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. So what is Daniel doing here? He's not going in gun blazing. He says, you know what? If God has placed me here in exile, I remember what Jeremiah said. I need to seek the welfare of the city. For when the welfare of the city thrives, I'm going to thrive. And so he doesn't go in this combative nature. He doesn't get in this um, defensive posture of being in this Christian bubble and says, me against the world out there. We're going in guns blazing. We're just going to go in there and be obnoxious. We're going to go in there and just be these, these really obnoxious Christians. No, he stands up for truth, yes, but he does it in a way that is that is." Res- respectful that is winsome he seeks the good of the community thirdly he knows that that god's going to come through he's very trusting of the lord and he knew god would honor this request he knew that they would be salt and light if they just did this 10 this 10 day experiment daniel was very trusting that god would reward their allegiance to him and god did do that what happens they're healthier 
This 10-week this ten experiment works. They're healthier. They're fatter, I guess. They're, they're, they're more, they're, they're, their faces are, are more filled out. And so God came through in the clutch and convinced the chief of the eunuchs to say, okay, just let them live off of vegetables and water. So the first big question, how do we remain dependent on Christ? Second big question, how do we remain faithful to Christ? Second big question. Third big question, how do we trust in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things? Daniel is a book that unashamedly proclaims the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. I mean, let's just see how it unfolds in in verse 1. I mean, chapter 1, you probably have seen it. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And Nebuchadnezzar might have thought, I'm the one in charge here. I'm ransacking Jerusalem, but who's the one really in charge? The Lord gave the king of Judah into his hands. The Lord is the one that's orchestrating this thing. The Lord's the one that's, that's allowing this to happen. God is in charge. As a matter of fact, the word the Lord there, it's the word Adonai. Adonai means master, sovereign, or ruler. In other words, this word Lord is used all throughout Daniel to talk about the absolute sovereignty of God having the right to be God. He is the king. Notice verse 9. God gave Daniel favor. God's the one that gave Daniel favor. God orchestrated events to where Daniel was, was seen in a favorable sight in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. In verse 17... Let's see how this continues to unfold. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all his visions and dreams. God did this. God did this. God gave this. God was in charge of this. All throughout Daniel, we see that God is the one that is responsible. God is the initiator. God is the one that's sovereignly working out his his purposes. It's the invisible hand of God's grace maneuvering and orchestrating things so that his will can be accomplished. And, And one of the things that I think that we're in danger of in our American evangelical church today is we are very, very man-centered. Very man-centered. And as we go through Daniel, we need to have a healthy dose of God-centeredness, the right for God to be God. So how does God sovereignly intervene in the lives of these, these four young men? Well, verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What does God do? They're ten times better than everybody else. Not because Daniel and his friends were smarter, but God gave them the ability. God worked out his purposes. Now, we need to understand this culture that was steeped in occultic paganism. He he says they were ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters. Now, when he talks about a magician, he's not talking about a guy that pulls a rabbit out of his hat or, or does a card trick. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about an astrologer, someone that studied the stars. As a matter of fact, they would study sheep livers, to kind of get ideas about the future. They were um, trying to do these spells. These were occultic astrologers. They were sorcerers. Secondly, they were enchanters. We would call these spirit mediums, people that talk to dead people, people that tried incantations of dead people to communicate with the dead. 
Now think about the world that these four young boys find themselves in. 900 miles away from home, miles away from their church family, if you will. No temple worship, no priesthood, no law. They're in this three-year indoctrination period. They're being taught a totally different worldview, a new language. They're taking a huge risk by not eating the king's delicacies. And then they're hanging out with these astrologers and these occultists. And they're learning an entirely new worldview surrounded by paganism. How in the world are these young boys going to survive? It's impossible without God's sovereign protection. God's got to be the one that's doing things in their life. God's got to be preserving them in his grace. God's got to be protecting them. God's got to be doing things in their life to to sovereignly shape their future so that they can last, so they can truly sing the songs of Babylon. Remember, they've got one foot in Jerusalem, one foot in Babylon. They are citizens of two kingdoms. They're not of this earth. They're surrounded by materialism, by greed, by seduction, all these temptations to compromise. How are they going to sing the songs of Babylon? I mean, sing the songs of Zion and Babylon. Now, look at how God sustains Daniel. Verse 21 tells us how long Daniel lived. Now, if you go back into your history, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, probably in his 90s. Now, here's the interesting thing about Daniel. You've got a story about a guy that starts out at 15 and ends when he's a senior adult. So no matter what stage of life you're in, whether you're a teenager or you're a seasoned adult, Daniel, we've got 90 years of his life here in the book of Daniel to see how he dealt with situations as a teenager, as a senior adult, and all ages in between. How do we remain dependent? How do we remain faithful? How do we understand God's sovereignty? Here's the fourth one. This is probably the hardest one. How do we avoid the trap of Daniel just being a morality tale. In other words, a lot of times when you read the Old Testament, you read these as little Aesop's fables, you read these stories, and you think, that's a great story. I want to be like Daniel. How many of you like sung the song, I want to be like Daniel. Let's all be a Daniel. Be a better Daniel. Just be a better Daniel. Be all you can be. Be a better Daniel. And one of the things I want to show you is this book is not about being a better Daniel. This book is about the sovereignty of God and the, and the, and the, and the salvation of Jesus Christ. And we need to be Christ-centered when we look at the book of Daniel. There's a great temptation to look at this book and say, I can do that. I can be a better Daniel. Just don't throw me in a lion's den and I'll be a better Daniel. Just don't have me go in a fiery furnace. I can do that. If I was just like Daniel... If I was just faithful to God like Daniel, my whole world would be so much better. God rewards those who are faithful to him. If I'm just faithful, then God is bound to be faithful to me. If I'm just committed, God will be happy with me. If I just live the best I can, then God's going to make it smooth sailing for me. If I was just like Daniel, everything would be better. The problem with that is that's not the gospel. The gospel says God is faithful to those who are not faithful to him. We are going to fail. And if we hold Daniel up as this model and say, I want to be a better Daniel, you're always going to fail. The gospel says that God is faithful to those who are unfaithful to him. Now, I'm not excusing, I'm not excusing you to go out and not be faithful, but what I'm saying is this. Our power to remain faithful to God is not by somehow pulling us up by our bootstraps. It's not by our ability to resist temptation. It's not by something that we can do by looking at Daniel. It comes through grace. In Jesus Christ. And God doesn't love you more because you're more faithful than the person next to you. If you are a saved child of God, God loves you, period. 
It's not a performance-based religion where the more I perform for God, the more he's bound to love me. We can get into the trap of thinking that we perform for God so that he loves us more. May I remind you that we obey God because he already loves us? We don't obey God to somehow earn his love. He already loves us in Jesus. We're just living out what he's already done for us. Who's the ultimate Daniel in the story? It's not Daniel. It's Jesus. Who left his home and went to exile? Jesus. Jesus left his home in heaven and he went to exile. Where was Jesus exiled? Planet Earth. And what did Jesus face? Whole lot more trials and temptations than a fiery furnace and a lion's den. He faced the cross. He faced the bloody cross. And he faced something far greater than Daniel and his friends would ever face. And yes, Daniel and his friends are great examples of godliness, but Daniel and his three friends never died on the cross for your sins. Jesus was the only perfect human being to ever live. He obeyed God perfectly in thought, word, and deed. He went to the cross. He died on the cross. He rose again so that we could be forgiven. He's a perfect Savior. And guess what happened after Jesus' period of exile? You know how the Israelites went back to Jerusalem after exile? Well, Jesus went back to his home, but it's heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father now, interceding on our behalf. And it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ, a personal relationship with him, that he gives you the power to remain faithful as you are living in this world. So one thing we must never, ever do, never fix your eyes on Daniel. Don't walk out of here and say, Daniel was such a great guy. Shadmach and Reshach and Abednego were such great guys. Never, ever fix your eyes on Daniel. Always fix your eyes on who? Jesus. We talk about this all the time. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The message of Daniel is not be like Daniel. The message of Daniel is look to Jesus. Look at the one whose death, burial, and resurrection gives you the only power to remain faithful, to remain dependent. It's only through Jesus. And the confidence that we have to live this life is because he already loves us. Please. And this is the way that we're wired. All people are wired this way. We are wired to try to somehow earn acceptance with God with whatever thing that you try to do to earn that acceptance. Even as Christians, we're still wired at times to try to earn our acceptance with God. May I remind you that Jesus Christ already earned it for you. He earned it on the cross for you. And you rest in what Jesus has done in his finished work. And God loves you because of Jesus. And, and you don't try to somehow earn God to love you. He loves you already through Christ. So how do you live as exiles in Babylon? We're all exiles. We're all living in Babylon. How do you do it? I want to remind you of the words of Peter. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, tells us how to conduct ourselves in the time of our exile, the way Daniel and his three friends conducted their time and their exile. Peter says this, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
How do we conduct ourselves in our time of exile? You realize you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus and you keep your eyes fixed on him. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning.